Good morning, everybody. Can everybody hear me at the back? Thank you. You won't have to hear me for very long, which you're going to be pleased about. Welcome to Edinburgh International Book Festival and to the man in the red shirt and the beautiful socks, Mr. Melvin Burgess. I think that deserves that. My name's Rachel McCabe. I'm a librarian at Grace Mount High School. And I bet you think there's not many perks in being a librarian, but there are. It's not the money. It's the fact that I have had a copy of Melvin's new book, Blood Song, for the last four weeks. That is the new book there. And it is a follow-on to Bloodside, and it is absolutely gobsmackingly brilliant. You are lucky enough to be here today to hear Melvin talk a little bit about that book and a bit to do about myths and the importance of myths nowadays. Melvin is an uncompromising writer. His books are really challenging. There's a lot of very good teenage fiction out there, but some of it is like in one ear and out the other. For Melvin, you need to think. Before we carry on with this event, I need to tell you that at the end of the event, there will be signing in the main signing tent, which is just behind there. And I would also ask you to give us a couple of minutes to leave the stage once Melvin has finished speaking. Melvin's going to speak and read from the book for however long it Until takes. Until I run out of things to say. Until he runs out of things to say. And then we're going to ask questions from you. So can you put your hands together, please, and welcome Melvin Burgess. Thanks very much. Can you all hear me? Yeah. At the back? Yeah. Great, OK. <clears throat> well, I hope that my book gets as much praise as my socks. I'll be very happy if that's the case. <clears throat> OK, thanks for you all for coming along. God, there's a lot of you, aren't there, eh? That's very gratifying. Um, right, so um, I suppose the books that I'm most well known for are the, um, the sort of gritty, social, druggy, dirty ones, like, <laughs> like Junk and Doing It which you, you, you can ask me about later on if you want. Um, there's sort of several strands to my work, I suppose. There's the books for sort of younger readers, which I've been neglecting a bit lately. And um, there's sort of little oddball things like uh, Lady, My Life as a Bitch. But, and then there's these fantasy kind of things. And it's the second one that I've done. So uh, here, comes, here comes the next batch. Hello. I'm afraid... I'm afraid we might get uh, interrupted from time to time because of the traffic. Disgraceful. God, there's thousands of them, aren't there? Okay, we'll just have to wait. Oh my God, more! <laughs> I think we're being surrounded. 
See, there's a door open at the back and they'll all come charging down the front shortly. <clears throat> okay, I'm sorry, there's so many people, I'll have to pause a little bit while everyone comes in. Okay. <clears throat> Are there any more coming? Do we know? Is that everyone? Does anyone know? Just as a quiet, you don't know. Okay, all right, fine. Okay, right, so, um, kind of fantasy books. This was the first one Blood Tide, Blood Song. And I have to say, although, as I say, some of my other books get more attention, I am, uh, these are my favourites. I'm proudest of these ones. I think they're my best books. And um, an another reason why I'm very fond of them is that, you know, in some ways I kind of feel with these books that I'm part of a tradition. Um, when I was, um, what I'm going to do, I'm going to tell you where they come from, how they came about, read a little bit, and then we can have some questions. When I was uh, quite small, I used to adore myths and legends. I, I loved all that. I had, you know, I, did, I think my dad managed to get hold of all these books on folk tales mythology, and the ones that really did it for me, the myths and legends that I really adored, were the Norse myths. Okay, there was a great book called um, Tales of the Norse Gods and Heroes, Barbara Leone Picard, absolutely fabulous retelling of these stories, and the thing that I liked about them particularly, I suppose, was that they're so dark and so bloody, and they're all about sort of passion and, and love and betrayal and despair. And everything, you know, everything is just really going to go down the pan in the end. I mean, in the Norse legends, even the gods go down the pan in the end. You know, there's this sense of the sort of darkness coming to overwhelm you. And um, Tales of the Norse Gods, and at the back of my copy of Tales of the Norse Gods and Heroes, and you know, I mean, a few years ago, this book was still in print, only they didn't have the hero tales in the back. It was just Tales of the Norse Gods. Hello. Hello. <laughs> So, so I'm going to carry on now, okay? Tales of the Norse Gods, they had this story called the Volsunga Saga, which is an Icelandic saga. Now, the Volsunga Saga... God, I don't know how you get all in here, actually. We're going to run out of room in a minute. The Volsunga Saga um, is a story that was told all over northwestern Europe. And, in fact, you know, it is our native hero myth. It's not all about Hercules and, and, and the stuff that they were telling in southern Europe. In Britain and in Germany and in Scandinavia, they told these stories. And, of course, the Norse gods were the gods that we used to worship before Christianity came to, to this island. Um, a lot of people are unaware... You know, we still have traces of this in place names, and we still have traces of it, of course, in uh, some of the days of our week. You know, we used to name the days of our week after the gods... So we had, for example, the god Wotan, Wotan's day, yeah, the god Tyr, Tuesday, the god Thor, that's fairly obvious, the god Frey, Frey's day, Frey's day. So, you know, they're still there with us. And this particular story, this particular Volsunga saga, as I say, it was our native hero myth, and everybody, 
in this part of the world, in Germany, in the Northlands, everybody would have known the story of Sigurd and the dragon and Brunhild <laughs> and the Valkyries and the whole thing. Everybody would have known this story. And, of course, it pretty well got, it pretty well got wiped out. So I knew that one day I would want to tell this story. Okay, I really, you know, really, I used to read this story. It's just absolutely fascinating. And the characters in it are so amazing. You know, you know it, considering that it was a story which actually comes from pagan times, pre-Christian times, a story from the Dark Ages, uh, a story over a thousand years old. I mean, you'd have these female, tremendously strong female characters. But, um, you know, these long stories of revenge and betrayal going across generations. Absolutely fabulous stuff. And as I say, being of the cast of mind that I am, I particularly like it that, as I say, everything kind of goes down the pan in the end. It's tragedy. And I think um, tragedy is something which isn't so popular today. Um, I think the reason is, is because, you know, from our point of view, if things go badly wrong in your life, it's because you've made some bad decisions, isn't it? You know, you have free will. And if things go wrong, it's your own fault. You should have done things differently. You should have worked harder or, you know, whatever. But in those days... They did actually believe, or certainly a lot of people believed, that the future was as fixed as the past. Everything that happened to you was already preordained. And consequently, you know, when things went really badly, disastrously wrong, that was how it was meant to be. There was nothing you could ever have done about it. And there's this great Viking quote by someone called, I don't know, Eric the Red or something, you know, which was to the effect of, you know, well, the manner of my death and the place of my death and the time of my death are all fixed, and all I have is how I face it. So in other words, you know, if awful things happened, you actually had a chance then to show what you were made of. You know, the, the, the judgment on you wasn't whether you sort of managed to control things and managed to make something of your life, it was how you faced your destiny. And if things were going really badly wrong, you know, what an opportunity to show, you know, what a man you were, or, you know, how able you were to face that. Because there's nothing you could have done about it. So I think for pagan people, uh, tragedy had uh, a greater appeal because it was not in any way a failure. <clears throat> so these old stories, okay, obviously it's blokes in horny helmets and beards and longships and swords in the woods and so forth. And uh, I did not want my, my, my stories to be like that. But these stories, you know, I, I wanted basically to sort of take those old myths, which obviously used to work for people, you know, a thousand years ago, they must have really meant something for someone to have lasted so long and to be told, you know, across so many countries, they must have really been powerful stories. But over the years, of course, it's all kind of, you know, it's very much in the past now, isn't it? You know, Vikings and, and swords and, you know, dwarves and wolves and dragons and all this kind of stuff. It's all, it's all in the past. And a lot of the plot things are in the past. I mean, there's a part, for example, um, in, in the story in Blood Song where um, uh, Sigurd is desperately in love with this woman and uh, the mother of another girl wants him to fall in love with her girl, so she gives him a drink, which makes him forget the first one. Right? And I mean, that doesn't really work as a sort of plot element anymore. Do you know what I mean? Sort of, oh, you know, put a pill in the Coca-Cola and you can't remember who your wife is anymore. It, you know, it, sort of, it doesn't quite work, does it? So, you know, things like that, you have to find a way of making that credible and making that work. And uh, I suppose that the, the initial work, if you like, that I did with that was with this first book, Blood Tide, and that was the, the, you know, the idea of updating the whole thing. And you know, those stories, 
remind me, you don't get very much in modern fiction, which, which reminds me of the kind of tone of those stories, but you do get things here and there in magazines, and uh, sometimes in computer games, and in graphic novels, and increasingly in films. I don't know if any of you went to see Sin City. Anyone seen Sin City? Yeah? yeah? Naughty, naughty, it's an 18. <laughs> bad, bad, bad. Anyway, I really advise you to go and see Sin City. It's a great movie. It is. Oh, come on. I mean, you know, it is a great movie. And, um, and you, know, the, at the end, you know, the heroes don't win. And, you know, everything's sort of really proud but doomed. And it's fabulous, you know, and it really quite reminds me of these stories. Um, another thing that I remember thinking of was uh, 2000 AD, you know, the 2001 AD, the Judge Dredd stories, you know, those sorts of things. And um, I kind of wanted to set it in a future world. I wanted to set it, and I remember films like Blade Runner, films like uh, the Alien films. I saw Alien 3 again the other night. Did anyone see that on the telly? Yeah? Great movie, and you know that sort of prison ship that they're on, which is obviously set miles and miles in the future, but the prison ship is a great rusting ancient hulk. And it's this idea of sort of things being super modern and technology making things possible, but the technology has gotten so old that it's all rusting and falling to bits, bits are falling off it, and you know, that sort of thing. It really appeals to me that. I really like that. It's the sort of, you know, magical, super modern, decaying world. So I wanted to set it in, uh, in that sort of thing. That sort of big city thing that you get in Blade Runner, that you get in, uh, in, in the 2001 AD comics, you know, is it Megopolis? What do they call it? Megopolis or something, where, where Judge Dredd does his dreading. You know, all that sort of stuff. I wanted to set it there, and you quite often get it on those shoot 'em up computer games, you know, those zombie games. They're sort of shambling along through these sort of decaying cities. You know, it really appeals to me. And then, you know, you go through stages like, um, okay, the Vikings, they all go around killing one another with swords. Okay, and that's a kind of romantic thing. You know, you get killed with a sword, it's sort of have at the bank. You know, it's all, you know what I mean? It doesn't really sort of work anymore. But in those days, when someone came to give you a good chopping and a good murdering, they would use a sword. That was the weapon of destruction at the time. Nowadays, you use automatic weapons. So, you know, you get rid of all that sort of stuff and you have, and then actually, instead of kind of being you know, this kind of, it actually then becomes what it was originally, which is violent. You know, it's a violent story. It's about sort of death. And that suddenly comes true. Um, the whole Viking thing as well, you know, little villages and blokes up the coast with their axes and so forth, you know, that doesn't really do it for me. But the, um, the idea of, you know, these people with this sort of, you know, rape and pillage and theft and this great sense of honour at the same time among them, really reminds me of the Mafia and gangland. I mean, what is the Mafia but kind of urban Vikings? Do you know what I mean? Kind of, kind of works, doesn't it? And there again, you know, the woods. You know, the woods used to be a really wild place. I mean, the whole of northwestern Europe was covered by one giant wood with sort of wolves and bears and darkness. And, you know, and people were actually quite genuinely scared of it. And they were scared of wolves. In, in Norse mythology, the wolves figure very largely... You know, they, they believed that the sun and the moon would be devoured by wolves at the end of all things. Uh, there was this terrible monster called the Fenris wolf, which was capable of breaking every bond in the world. Any chain, no matter how heavy it was, it could break. And they only managed to restrain it, 
you know, by a magic cord made out of you know, invisible things like the breath of a fish and the roots of a mountain and this kind of stuff. So they really believed in, well, you know, wolves aren't actually like that anymore. Nowadays they're kind of, you know, protected things, you know, and if you don't look after them they, they kind of get extinct. Hello! Gosh, you really are very late, aren't you? <laughs> that really is, I think, the record so far. Heavy traffic. The coach didn't turn up. The coach didn't turn up, oh god. How did you get here then? You didn't all hitchhike, did you? Sort of. Sort of. <laughs> okay, so we get rid of the swords and we exchange them with automatic weapons. We get rid of the, the wild woods and we place it to what we would find dangerous, which is sort of dark, neglected parts of the city. Okay, we... Um, we get rid of the wolves as monsters and we replace them with sort of genetically engineered things. We do all that kind of stuff. And we set it in the future so that hopefully, you know, I could take the elements of that myth which are sort of so poignant and which really work very well and I can make them resonate today so that they have a sort of powerful quality today. And in the end, of course, these, the, you know, those kind of things caught the audience's attention but what really makes them work of course is that you know they are actually about real people and when you read about Sigurd and uh, Sigmund and Signy and that lot um, you know you recognise their their plight and how they work and that's always what's interesting to me whether I'm doing sort of realism things like doing it in junk or whether I'm doing these fantastic things it's about actually what makes the people tick that I find interesting I love all the sort of adventure and all that kind of stuff as well but it's what makes them tick if someone is facing some terrible danger, right, whether it's terrorists or a tank or a dragon, you still have to deal with how someone reacts and how they are changed by being faced with a terrible danger and how they face it, whether they face it in terms of sort of being brave or being a coward or whatever. That's what's interesting. Most fantasy is kind of plot-driven. When I was a kid, the fantasy that I really liked reading was Mervyn Peake. Anyone read Gormenghast? Those stories? The gobby kid in the front row has read Gormenghast. Anyone else? No? <laughs> a few of you. The thing about Gormenghast, although the characters and the situation is fantastic and the characters actually are larger than life, they actually sort of grow and change and you can believe them as being, you know, people. They have a, a, a sort of identity which changes. It's not like Lord of the Rings where, you know, Gimli is the same at the beginning as he is at the end, isn't he? You know, he doesn't go through. There's not much character development in Gimli, the dwarf. So, you know, that is different. And when people go through these great tragic events, uh, as they do in these kind of myths, they are transformed by them. And that is what's interesting. Okay, so um, the Volsunga Saga. This is the first part of the Volsunga Saga. Okay? This is the next bit. And um, the first bit kind of appealed to me more because they're all kind of damaged, you know, mucked up people. Uh, this one I put off because it's, it's about a proper hero. Okay, and uh, someone who is truly admirable and truly glorious, and I found that a rather frightening thing to uh, to deal with. So I'm going to read you a bit now. Um, without giving too much away, um, for those of you who've read Blood Tide, this takes place in the future, and Sigurd is the son of. Siggy of Sigmund. Um, 
It's kind of, um, you know, you, you might, Blood Tide was sort of set in London and it was very kind of, you know, post-apocalyptic and, you know, post-industrial, all this kind of stuff. Um, this is set, you know, after the country has been completely destroyed again. Everything sort of really sunk down into sort of little kingdoms and, you know, fiefdoms and gang lords and this kind of thing running little bits. And there is a terrible monster, okay, living on Hampstead Heath. Michael Foot, probably, I don't know. But anyway, this terrible monster living on, on Hampstead Heath, okay. Now, in the original story, okay, when it was a dragon, and it, you know, the dragon was originally a man. He was a man in the original story, and he had become this terrible monster simply through greed. His own greed had transformed him into this sort of awful worm. And in this book, you know, uh, of course, you know, as I, I said, in, uh, in, in terms of... Um, trying to make monsters, I chose sort of cloned things, you know? You know, you read these stories about, you know, the first cloned dog and mice with ears growing on their backs. Do you remember the one about the mouse that glowed like a jellyfish in the dark because they put jellyfish genes in it? Do you know that one? How long will it be once cloning technology is a little better before someone decides to sort of brew their own army? You know? A little dog in your soldiery, a little spider perhaps, so you've got a poisonous, you know what I mean? I'm sure this is possible. And I'm sure it will be done. Okay, so in this story, the dragon was originally a man, and he's now turned into this terrible monster. Um, his skin is impermeable. Uh, the only way um, it, Sigurd can kill him, okay, is to get a sword which is made of a, a material that was given by Odin, okay? It's, this can cut through anything. And every morning, the dragon slides down from his citadel down to a pool to bathe. And Sigurd has to hide himself under the mud. And as the dragon passes overhead, he puts up this sword and it disembowels itself on the way down. Okay? And then he's going to blast into the wound with various automatic and explosive weapons just to make sure it's completely finished off. Uh, Sigurd was, um, as I say, the son of Sigmund, who was a Volson, and the Volsongs were very loved by the god Odin. People sometimes think of Odin as the sort of king of the gods, but he wasn't really. He was the god of soldiers. He was the god of warriors and princes. He was in some ways the god of death. He was the god of magic, and he was the god of poetry. So he was quite a complicated figure. He had the runes to speak to the dead. He could make the dead speak their secrets to him. They used to believe that he went and spoke to the dead hanging on the gallows at night to get them to tell him their secrets. In order to learn magic, he, like Christ, hung. You know, he, was, he wasn't crucified, but he hung on a tree for nine days. He was sacrificed to himself for nine days um, in order to get the magic runes. He gave an eye in order to drink out of the well of knowledge so that Odin knew everything that had happened and he also knew everything that will happen. And as I say, he was the god of poetry. But poetry in those days was a much more violent affair than it is now. And it was the poetry of death and the poetry of war. And you, you read the poems of the time, they are generally about warfare and slaughter. Uh, and a glorification of warfare and slaughter. Very different. So, I'll just set the scene for you. <coughs> Sigurd is terrified. He is completely mindless with terror, but because he believes this is his fate, he has no choice but to go through with it. So he goes and he digs this trench, and as he digs it, it seems to him that it's going to be his grave in, the, in this deep rut where the dragon comes along. And as he's digging it, an old man appears to him, 
with a broad hat, a grey beard, and in the deep shadows under this hat he's just got one eye sparkling. So we know it's Odin. And the man says to him, you know, because he loves the Volsungs, he says, Sigurd, my love, what happens when the blood, dragon's blood comes down upon you in the trench? You'll drown in blood. You need to dig a trench to one side so that the blood will flow off. But don't avoid the blood of the dragon, because whoever bathes in the dragon's blood will acquire the properties of the dragon. In other words, you know, Fafnir, the monster, has changed himself by sort of using viruses to recode his, his genes, and they will be in the blood, and you will, as it were, catch the same diseases, and you will acquire that impermeable skin. Okay, so Sigurd does as he's told. He seals himself in the tomb, and then he waits, and he waits for three days, and during that time, in the darkness, he has this sort of sensory deprivation, and he does go a bit crazy. And then he hears someone approaching, but it's not the dragon, it's the god. And the god seals him in the tomb so that the air is cut off, and there he dies. Okay, so Odin kills his favourite. And then Odin enters the tomb and lies with him in the tomb, almost like a lover. And he makes the dead man whisper his secrets to him, and he whispers his secrets back to the dead man, and then he breathes life into him and leaves him there waiting for the dragon. Okay? So I'll read from there. It's a rather gruesome bit, this. It's probably the most gruesome bit, actually, but that's the bit that I like. <coughs> After the god left him, Sigurd lay very still, not even breathing. He didn't need to. He lay for another day in utter stillness until at last he felt the ground shaking around him and he knew the dragon was coming. And then he lifted his head, drew in air, barred his teeth at the unseen sky above his head and prepared to die again in a torrent of blood. It was a simple plan and like so much that is simple it had to be done well. Sigurd was to plunge the sword up through the clay at exactly the right moment. Fafnir was travelling fast. Too soon and the monster would see the sword and fling himself aside. Too late and he would miss the vital organs. In, the, in his dark cell underground, all Sigurd had to go on was the shaking of the ground around him. Fafnir was sliding like an otter on a mudslide by the water's edge. In the 15 years that he'd ruled Hampstead Heath and all that remained of London around it, this was his only sport, to slide out of his citadel on his belly and plunge headfirst in the water below. To Sigurd, it sounded like a train rushing towards him. Every second he thought the monster was over him, but still the noise grew. Still he had held back, waiting for the perfect moment. Odin would tell him when, he thought. Then, suddenly, the latex ballooned down above him. For a split second, the thought was in his mind, hold back, lay low, you can still live. Then he lunged upward with the blade with all his strength, up through the latex and the mud, up through the impossible, impassable skin, and deep into the bowels of Fafnir. The sword was wrenched violently along in the direction the dragon was travelling, and Sigurd was crumpled violently up against the end of the chamber with such force that the steel of the sword cracked. Stunned, Sigurd hung on for a moment longer while the dragon, forcing his claws deep into the cave to stop his flight, continued down the slope, and the sword carried on with its deadly work. There was a terrifying... Then, as it hit the pelvic bone, the blade snapped. There was a terrifying scream above him like a bomb falling, and a torrent of blood and guts came tumbling down into the trench, covering Sigurd's eyes and filling his mouth. 
Stuffing the stub of his sword into his belt, he began fighting his way upwards towards air and life. He burst out of the ground in a rush of bud like a baby coming into the world for the first time. Fafnir had stopped himself just short of the water and lay there right by him, writhing on the ground on his side, swinging his great tail from side to side and scooping his arms in front of him in a desperate effort to push his spilled guts back into his body cavity. There was a three-metre wound in his belly from his sternum to his tail. He saw Sigurd rise up out of the ground and swung at him with a groan, but the boy danced to one side. In the same movement, he pulled a machine gun from his back and fired, a hundred rounds in three seconds, raking up and down directly into the wound. Fafnir roared in pain and flailed. Inside the great wound he had cut, Sigurd could see the diaphragm moving as his lungs worked and the pulsing beat above where the great heart did its work. There was a deep gash in his sternum where the blade had first struck exactly right. The boy dropped the machine gun, pulled the shotgun off his back, walked up to the monster, thrust the double barrels in under the breastbone and up until he felt them press against the beating muscle inside, and then he gave it both barrels. Got you, you bugger! Now die! he screamed, and jumped back to watch. The wound throbbed violently as the shells exploded. Fafnir screamed and clawed at him, and Sigurd was dashed to one side as a fountain of blood burst over him. The dragon groaned again and rolled back onto his front, reaching out with his great clawed hand in a last, in a last effort to recapture his spilled insides. He took a deep sigh, which Sigurd was certain would be his last. Rolled over so that the wound was buried in the mud and settled his great and beautiful head down on the bloody ground. But his yellow eye was still half open and he fixed Sigurd in his, in his stare. There was a long, still moment and then the dragon spoke. A child, a beautiful child, he whispered. Who are you? Sigurd Volson, son of Sigmund. Fafnir, who had closed his eyes in pain, opened it again to stare at his killer. Sigurd frowned back. He was thinking, I just blew your heart to pieces. Why aren't you dead? What's happening? The dragon coughed and snarled. Brother, he hissed. No brother of mine. This is the kind of hero you are. I'm Steer. Do you know me, boy? They call you Fafnir. They know nothing. Steer? Could it be true? Sigmund's first son, who had run off after killing his aunt and clone brother, had he spent all these years turning himself into this? Sigurd was shaken, but he didn't show it. If you were ever were my brother, you gave it away long ago. What sort of a man turns himself into this? I was invulnerable, boasted Steer. I ruled. Lord of London. Sigurd laughed. Ruled over what, he demanded. Burnt brick and gold. Some king. Some kingdom. Fafnir groaned again. His eye fluttered, but he wasn't dead yet. All those treasures brought me no joy, and they'll bring no joy to you either, Sigurd. You'll end like me. Don't doubt it. Sigurd laughed again. If I was immortal like the gods, then maybe I'd feel death. But we all have to die, Fafnir. Why should I fear that which can't be changed? <clears throat> all the time the dragon was lying there with his clammy eye fixed on Sigurd, watching closely. And all the time Sigurd was getting more and more anxious and confused. What was going on? He'd destroyed the monster's heart. What more did he have to do? And why was the creature talking to him? Fafnir 
steer was keeping his arms wrapped over the wound which he pressed closely into the mud beneath him. What was he doing? Just holding on to life? But with no heart? As the dragon passed, had passed over him, it had twisted to one side in an effort to escape the blade, and so the wound twisted up his side towards the pelvis. Sigurd suddenly took two rapid steps to the side, bent down to look, and managed to catch sight of the end of the wound by the monster's tail before he rolled on his belly to hide it. He looked into the wound, and he saw flesh knitting together, blood sucking its way back up, the tubes of his insides reuniting, muscle knotting and pushing back into place, bone-forming splinters that reached out to bone, forcing themselves together, knitting, stitching, joining. Steer was healing himself before Sigurd's very eyes. There was a brief frozen moment. Sigurd knew, Fafnir knew Sigurd knew. They stared into each other's eyes. You thought you were watching my death, hissed the dragon, but you were watching your own. And he lunged. There was to be no escape. You can catch the dragon unawares, but you can't fight him. <coughs> Sigurd had a few rounds left in the machine gun, but what good could they do when so many had already failed? The monster was already partly healed. Wounded as he was, he was a hundred times faster and stronger than Sigurd, better armed and getting better by the second. There was only one place to go. Sigurd did not run, but dived forwards. He hit the ground behind the striking claw, right before Fafnir's belly, rolled forward and plunged headfirst back into the blood-filled trench. He dived down through the hot, thick blood, and then up again under the dragon. Here was the slit he had cut in the mud, and above it, skin. Frantically, he pushed his way through the blood and abandoned guts. More skin. Bubbles escaped from his nose and mouth as he desperately hung onto his air. Lungs bursting, he groped further along, and there... Right at the end, he found a gap. His hand plunged straight through into the hot, wet insides of his brother's steer. He pushed his hands up into the wound and hauled himself right up inside the monster. There in the pulsing dark, Sigurd fought his way up, pushing aside the dark coils of intestines, hacking as he went, gagging on spilled food, blood and bile. <coughs> He pulled himself forward up into the tight ball of the stomach, chopped that open, felt the atrocious sting of acids, and still fought on, up past the diaphragm and into the ballooning lungs. And here he sucked in more precious air, and then up again, up and up, deeper and deeper into the body of the dragon. And above him, something pulsed and beat, pulsed and beat. Two hearts. The bastard has two hearts, he said. Sigurd pushed forward, towards the pulse of life and seized it in both hands. Fafnir hauled himself upright, howling in pain, clawing at his own chest, hacking and fighting to tear himself open. At last he got a claw into the place where Sigurd had entered him and ripping upwards, split himself open for a second time along the new scar from his belly right up to his ribcage. He was screaming like a boiler ready to explode as he soared through the plate of his own sternum which stitched itself back together, even as he fought to open it. Now the dragon began to pull himself apart, heaving on his own skeleton, forcing himself open in a desperate attempt to save his life. He gave a final tug, and there was a loud crack as his ribs stretched open like bloody wings. He looked down into his centre, just in time to see Sigurd reach up to the football of the huge heart, wrap his hands around it, and with a terrific tug, wrench it from his bearings with his bare hands. 
And as his light died, Steer reached in to pluck out his tormentor, but the life was gone before his claws touched him, and with a great spout of blood from the torn vessels, Fafnir the Terrible fell and died. There you go. That's one of my favourite bits. <coughs> You might think that the thing with the wings, the ribs, is a wee bit fanciful, but the Vikings did actually have a death that they committed on people called the Blood Eagle. Okay? So do you know about the Blood Eagle? The Blood Eagle. Okay, so they'd get you down on the floor, and they'd hack your ribs at the back, okay, and then they'd pull your lungs out through the holes. The Blood Eagle. I mean, what sort of minds conceive of anything like that? They should have them at Guantanamo Bay. Okay. Um, I think it's question time. We've got 15 minutes left, not very long. Do we have a sort of roving mic thing here? Thank you. Thanks. Okay, I am, I'm all yours. Anyone got any questions? Oh, come on. I can't go on for another 15 minutes. Anyone? Thank you very much. What interested you in writing about mythology? Well, I don't know. I just, I just love myths. I just love myths. And um, stories are funny things, mm -hmm. aren't they? You know, you get sort of, you, you know, your crime stories and you get your, um, your love stories and so forth. But myths, you know, myths actually mean something uh, really quite important to people. I mean, when you think about, um, you know, religion, for example, I mean, God... Not that I believe in God, but to those who believe in God, God does first reveal himself through stories, doesn't he? You know, the, the, the stories are the, the thing through which, you know, people, people experience things really quite powerfully. And those myths were, were, you know, the way in which people had these sort of, you know, profound experiences and profound beliefs, and they meant something to people. And for that reason, I just think that there are, they have a, a sort of deeper resonant quality um, in our lives, if only you can sort of reach it and make it work in a, in a modern sense. So uh, I suppose it's something like that. And the other thing is, you know, these stories were told so far and wide, you know, they were actually told by real master storytellers, you know, real master storytellers, the fact that they survived for so long. And when you read them, you know, they work so well. And the, the challenge, you know, is, is to take something which is written by a complete master a thousand years ago to try and make it work now. And you don't have to learn a lot. I mean, for those of you who are interested in writing, trying to find an old story which has survived for so long and then trying to sort of translate it into modern terms is an incredible challenge because you learn so much about how the story works as, as you do it. You really learn a great deal about your, your craft. So it's for all those reasons. I've got a real weakness for them. Thanks a lot. Is there, is there a lad here was putting his hand up, yeah? How much did you make on the book? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a tricky question, really. I mean, it's tricky for two reasons, right? Um, for one is it's not even out yet, okay? So um, I sort of make some money um, every time it's sold. Um, uh, then you have things like translation rights, okay, whenever it gets sold to a foreign country. I think... Um, I think Germany sort of wants to buy it so far. I don't, I don't know whether anyone else wants to buy it yet. 
um, some of my books get translated into sort of 20 odd, maybe even 30 languages. And uh, so, you, you know, in some countries like uh, America, Germany, and Japan pay you a lot of money. Some countries like um, the Soviet Republic, China, and, um, you know, Lithuania don't pay you so much. Um, and then you get sort of film rights. I mean, Doing It, for example, was bought up by ABC and, and turned into a sort of television series called Life As We Know It, which appeared on Living TV. I don't know if any of you got that. They gave me a truckload of money for that. <laughs> and uh, the only thing I could concretely tell you is how much my advances are, and I'm not going <laughs> to. Okay? There's a lady up there. Do your children read your books, and if so, what do they think of them? Well, you know, of course, your children kind of, um, kind of tend to be reading your books for most of the time when they're really too young for them, and then when they're too old for them. There's only a sort of short period when they catch them. They tend to get them when they're too young. Do you know what I mean? Because by the time they sort of start reading, suddenly they discover there's this great row of books, and they sort of plough their way through them. Or not, as the case may be. Um, I remember when I did doing it, my son was about 14. And of course, he nobbled it fairly swiftly. And afterwards, I, I said to him, so what did you think of that? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, what do you think? Because, I mean, see, the thing is, I'm not just a writer. I'm his dad. Do you know what I mean? How embarrassing is that? I mean, you know, if I, if I was your dad and I sort of wrote filthy books... The young people, and I was standing up here in front of people going, you know, you would die, wouldn't you? You really would absolutely bloody die. And I remember him saying to me, I said, well, you know, was it sort of right? You know, is, is that, you know, do people sort of speak and think like, oh, yeah. So I said, well, what's the problem? It's just the fact that you think like that. It's disgusting. <laughs> so, old people can be disgusting too, you know. In fact, we've, we've had a lot more practice at it. We're much better at it. Is that such a horrible thought? You know, one of the things, one of the things about doing it was, was that there was a sort of suspicion that I might be a dirty old man because I was writing, I was writing stuff for sort of, um, you know, which was, uh, had a degree of sort of sexuality in it for young people. And there was this sort of accusation that I was a dirty old man. And my response always was, I don't mind being a dirty old man, but I'd rather do it with dirty old women. <laughs> Power to the dirty old women. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, um, I have to say, uh, he, he read Blood Song. He, I think that's probably his favourite, actually. Um, my daughter, who, who lives, has lived, she's coming to stay with me for a while, but she's been living in Germany and in the Ukraine, right? Um, and so, consequently, she speaks Russian and German as well as English. I used to send her tapes. Uh, and one day, you know, she loved the tapes, and then one day she did suddenly start reading, and since then she sort of wham, Potter, Pullman, the whole thing, you know, including my books. And uh, I think she quite likes my books, but she's polite. <laughs> and um, um, but she did enjoy Blood Tide, and she did enjoy Blood Song, and, and my kids prefer that sort of thing, actually. Yes. Okay. So you know, you can't always tell. There's a, a lad over here with a question. Where did you get your socks? 
<laughs> Pretty sexy, huh? <laughs> Can you hear all the dirty old women gasping with pleasure around the... Um, um, my socks... I don't know where I got these socks. I used to get a lot of socks from... Uh, whenever I was at the station, I used to get sock shop. used to do really bright cotton socks. Bright red, bright blue, bright purple, which I really enjoyed. I think my dirty old wife might have gotten me these. <laughs> There's a, a lad up right at the back there. Why do you write? Why? Ah. Search me. Um, there are a number of answers to that, really. Um, I have heard it said that people who, who write do it because they sort of have to, and it kind of keeps their heads together, and otherwise they sort of go a bit mad. I don't think that's true. It is true that, you know, I... I um, like a lot of people who have become writers, I was incredibly stubborn. You know, I wouldn't say that I sort of locked myself in any sort of ivory tower because I've always um, enjoyed life. But um, you know, I certainly, I certainly kept at it. You know, and I didn't have any sort of career because that was what I wanted to do. And I spent a lot of time out of work and doing really bad jobs and you know hard jobs. Um, but I suspect that one of the answers might be is that actually it's the only thing I, I was ever any good at. I was very, I was crap at school, frankly. You know, I mean, I, and my, I'm one of those people who is really unable to concentrate on things unless they interest me. You know, and I mean, at school, if you're one of those types of people, you're stuffed, really. You know, because I mean, most of it isn't actually going to be very interesting to you. I mean, not everybody is interested in sort of maths and English and art and geography. You know what I mean? By and large, the people who do really well at school have this incredible gift. Right, which is perhaps the, called the gift of hard work, or perhaps it's just the gift of being able to concentrate on things that you don't care about. You know, I mean, it's true. If you can do that, the world's your oyster, really. Um, I suppose such people have a very high boredom threshold. I have a very low boredom threshold. I get bored quite easily. I remember sitting in school and sort of, you know, getting so bored, I actually feel quite panicky. Do you know that feeling? Do you ever get that? You're sitting there thinking, God, I can't get any bored than this, because it's almost exciting, this level of boredom. It's almost, it's almost hallucinogenic, you know. I'm going to start, you know, if I stay here for another second, I'm going to go mad. Oh, God, there's ten minutes to go. And then you wait for sort of two hours, and there's still ten minutes to go. You know, it's, oh, I used to sort of really suffer like that. Um, and uh, so there you go. So, but, but I was always interested in reading. I've always loved stories, myths, all that stuff. And uh, I found out early, quite early on that I, I could actually um, engage people by telling stories. Um, I, I was a bricklayer for a while and all that sort of thing, but I was a really crap bricklayer. <laughs> you know, so I mean, it is the one thing that I can do well. Um, so that might very well be why. And you know, I mean, it's a nice life as well. You know, the hours are short. I do sort of three or four hours writing a day. I'm working here as I stand before you. Um, you know, I have most of the afternoon off. You know, sort of writing itself is a very concentrated thing, and you do actually concentrate very hard, and your brain gets tired. Most writers don't actually work for more than a few hours a day. A few years ago, when um, I was um, a little less well-known, I, I, I really just used to have nothing to do most of the day. Now I find sort of emails and websites and admin uh, takes up a lot of time, but um, even so, you know, uh, it always reminds me of um, what the old... I don't know if you remember, you remember an actor called Robert Mitchum, 
when they asked him sort of why he acted, he said, well, it sure beats working for a living. And uh, I'd say that about my job as well. There's someone back there, and then there's some people on the other side. How many books have you wrote? About 18, I think. Most of them sunk deep in obscurity. There's some people over there. That's a tricky question because, um, do you know, you sort of find at different po points in your life that different ones are different favourites for different points of view, do you know what I mean? Uh, my current favourite is this one. I'm very pleased with this one and I am stupid and vain enough, or, almost always, to really like the one that I've just finished. Do you know what I mean? You've just finished it and you think, ooh. You know, that's not bad, is it? Oh, I like that. And I suppose the thing is, you know, like a lot of writers, what I write are the books that I want to read. Do you know what I mean? So in a sense, it's vanity. In a sense, it's sort of great that you can sort of, oh, no one's written that book, but I can. And then when you read it, you like it. You know, and I, I'm, so there's that. I'm very pleased with my very, very first book, which was called The Cry of the Wolf, which is still in print. I think I'm very lucky. I think nearly all my books are still in print. And... Uh, I spent years and years and years writing and trying to be a, a successful writer and sort of when you're doing it when you're young people kind of admire you for it and as you get a bit older they start thinking you're a bit weird and by the time you sort of get to 30 and you're doing a really crap job or you're still out of work and, and you're still writing books that no one has ever read you by that point are a real twat aren't you? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? You have become a twat and then suddenly you get your book published and suddenly overnight you're transferred from twat to author and it feels so good. Of course, um, you might still be a twat. You know, you might still wear twatty socks and shirts and things. But you know what I mean. So I'm very, very fond, grateful, pathetically grateful to that one. Uh, I was very fond of junk as well. Um, I'm very fond of uh, another book of mine called Loving April. I'm very fond of a book of mine called The Baby and Fly Pie. Um, doing it... Right, I was fond of, not because I necessarily think it's my best book, because it isn't, but because um, it's not actually the sort of thing I'd normally take it upon myself to write, not because of the controversial thing, but because of the structure of it. You know, most of my stuff has got a very strong narrative, and that one's kind of different things happen to different people at different times. And I found it very, very hard to write, and I, I wrote it because I thought it was uh, something that, you know, someone should have written, you know, that, you know, it should be written. So that's why I did it. So I'm sort of kind of proud of that one for that reason. So that's a rather meandering, stupid, uh, which really means I don't actually have a favourite. But at the moment, it's this one. And I do actually think it's my best one. Somebody at the front? Somebody at the front? Hey? Eh? Just want to. She's just giving you a lot of exercise, that's what she's. <laughs> what was your favourite bit before you became a writer? <clears throat> Well, I could go through a few of my favourite books at different points. Uh, my very first favourite book was The Wind in the Willows when I was about six, right? Okay, after that it was... Um, I just loved reading uh, Gerald Durrell books. Gerald Durrell was a man who went around the world collecting animals for zoos. <coughs> what a job! Um, there's a great book called Finn the Wolfhound, which I just adored. Nobody ever reads those sort of dog books now, you know, but I just loved that book, you know? 
Um, I adored Gorman Gasp by Mervyn Peake. Um, and then as I got older, there was a long period in which I sort of just decided that I wanted to read old books, you know, sort of Victorian novels and this sort of thing. And um, I have to say, I didn't enjoy them half as much as when I started deciding I wanted to read modern books. But I did like Sherlock Holmes for a long time. And I still think they are just so perfect, those stories, those Sherlock Holmes stories. And amazing that they're so old and they still work so well. Uh, other books, great book called Theory of War by Joan Brady, which I like very much, which I'd recommend you all to read. That's enough, isn't it? Okay. I think we've got Ooh. about time for one more question. So can we take one more question? Who's really desperate? Stand up, put your hand up, we get the question. Lady at the back, girl at the back. Girl at the back over there, that's great, thanks. No, no, she's right over there. Oh, that's unfair, because she stood up. We'll have to take two then. Can we have her first, because she was brave? Where do you get ideas for your books? I don't know the answer to that question. There isn't anywhere. You know, I mean, I mean, I, you know, people kind of assume when you write books that you're going to get an idea which is a book, right? And for years, when I wanted to be a novelist, and I sort of knew I could write good prose, and I knew I could do characters and situations and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't know what to write about. I didn't know how to write a book, in other words. And for years, I thought, I just need to get an idea for a book. How do you think of a book? But the fact of the matter is, is a book is built. Okay, and, and what you learn isn't how to sort of have an idea for a book. You have an idea and you learn how to turn it into a book. So anything that you're interested in can be a book. You know, if you're interested in you know, animals or fashion or babies or you know, death or whatever it is, you, know, you then have to think, how can I make something like that turn into a story? And then once you've sort of got one, then you know, there's sort of little offshoots. You, know, you want to develop that character or this idea that you had into something, and, and then one book leads to another book. So, you know, it's, uh, it's that. Certainly when I first started writing, I was sort of, they were tend to be kind of, you know, I wanted to do something about, you know, extinction, or I wanted to do something about, um, uh, you know, sort of unfairness, or kids, you know, I remember Baby and Fly Pie was about, was based on the idea of those kids in places like Bogota being shot like vermin. You know, they shoot street kids like rats because they are vermin. You know, I wanted to write something about that. So, you know, it can come from anywhere, but, the, you know, you don't get an idea for a book. You sit down and you think, how can I turn it into a book? What sort of, you know, you imagine, you might just begin by imagining the situation in the book or a character in the book. I think we will have to bring it to a close just now. If you still want to ask something to Melvin, he will be signing books in the tent just behind us over there. I hope you've learnt as much from this as I have. I think it's been great. I think a man who has socks like that and can live up to the power of the socks. I live up to my socks. Live up to the socks. I also just want to say one last thing. When I was doing this and they said they'd put my name up there, I wish I'd told them I wanted it to be introduced by Rachel McCabe, wannabe dirty old woman. Let's thank so much to Melvin Burgess. I'm sure you manage. Thanks very much. <laughs>